Hello, everyone, and welcome to HR Works, the podcast for HR professionals. We really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to join us. This podcast aims to put valuable tools and knowledge into the hands and ears of you, the HR professional. Those tools will arm you with the best methods and strategies for attracting, motivating, and retaining top talent. In this episode, we discuss the realities of returning to work, specifically as it relates to testing. I think the question many are asking themselves is, is it even possible to return to work safely? And if so, what role does testing play? What are some of the considerations that HR and employers need to understand before implementing return path that includes testing? Uh, we have in other episodes discussed legal issues with testing and liability issues. That is not going to be the focus of today's discussion. I will provide a link in the description to those uh, those episodes. We're pleased to have with us today Dr. Sri Chagudaru, Chief Medical Officer for CVS Caremark, the pharmacy benefits management business for CVS. He focuses on enhancing the quality of services provided to millions of its members and patients while also contributing to the overall mission of CVS Health. Most recently, he was the Chief Population Health Officer at Partners Healthcare. In this this role, he led the Systems Accountability Care Organization, one of the largest in the nation, serving over 600,000 lives. Previously, he was a healthcare consultant at McKinsey & Company. He is a practicing internal medicine physician at Massachusetts General Hospital and a lecturer at Harvard Medical School. His articles have appeared in publications such as the New England Journal of Medicine, JAMA, and Health Affairs. He received his bachelor's degree in biology from Brown University and his doctorate of medicine degree from Brown University Medical School. He completed his internal medicine and primary care training at Massachusetts General Hospital. Thank you, Sri, so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. We're in such a mixed bag right now. You know, we have cases increasing in some places, decreasing in some places. I'm here in Connecticut where allegedly we had everything under control, but just recently a couple of key metrics have changed where uh, your chance of spreading it to another person is now over one. Um, it's a chaotic time. A lot of people are talking about what's going to happen in the fall. Uh, we're going to have a resurgence. It's... um. I, th- I think it's made, you know, obviously it's made everybody pretty concerned. Uh, and then especially employers that are in states that either haven't restricted uh, employment, you know, concerns like being in, in the office and social distancing or are in places where um, the businesses are reopening. And I think at the heart of all this is like a really important question, which is uh what are the reopening considerations that companies and leaderships and HR teams should really be thinking about during this time? It's a head-spinning time for all of us. I mean, if we were to think about what the world was like a year ago, we are now living in a radically different world. And uh, it was only a little over six months ago when we first started to see widespread community transmission of COVID. Uh, and in, in those six, seven months, uh, we now live in a very different world. And so we are thinking about, all of us, about how to create safe uh, work environments, safe educational environments. Um, and, uh, and so happy to talk through all of those um, considerations from a, a, a clinical perspective. And as you said, there's uh, uh, many other considerations, legal and regulatory uh, which I'll have less to say about in, in this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I think probably the first and most important question is, is it possible to safely return to work at all? 
Great question. Um, I think one thing for us to all remember is many of us have continued to work uh, through the pandemic. So uh, the question I would reframe it as how do we return to work site? Um, because we've all been working um, if uh, we've had that uh, luck during this uh, economic right. downturn. But in terms of return to work site, yes, it is possible, but we have to take into account um, how to create a safe working environment. Part of that is thinking about the personal uh, protection and the physical plant and thinking about uh, ensuring that you have uh, the right protection that's in place, uh, thinking about the capacity that um, your physical institution um, can manage safely that allows for safe distancing. Um, but another piece uh, is what is the role of testing to ensure that people uh, do not have active infection when they're on the work site. So um, let me briefly talk about some of the you know, considerations in the first bucket about the physical space, but then perhaps we can talk more about testing because that's probably the more complicated of the subjects. So in terms of the physical plant, um, there's cleaning protocols, there is uh, physical barriers, and then there's personal policies and procedures. And so um, on the, um, we'll sort of start with the um, criteria for coming into the office. Um, in general, uh, employers have been um, instituting uh, symptom checkers, and those symptom checkers are a largely validated set of criteria from the Centers for Disease Control that have been evolving over time, but include fever, cough, shortness of breath, but also some other symptoms that are uh, non-specific, but have had some correlation to COVID, such as loss of taste or smell, headaches, nausea, um, or unexplained muscle aches. And so these symptom checkers, um, being able to test before you come to the work site that you don't have those symptoms is a really important part of ensuring that the work site is uh, safe, that people who come in are feeling healthy. Um, in addition, when people come into work, we want to make sure that there is, um, when possible, space or distance of six feet or greater, uh, because we know that there's increased transmission when people are less than six feet uh, in proximity for greater than 15 minutes. Um, in addition, uh, in, uh, encouraging the use of masks there is increasing evidence that masks, even uh, non-surgical um, medical grade masks do limit uh, transmission of the virus in the community or the work site. And then uh, also uh, thinking about uh, routine cleaning or deep cleaning when there is uh, uh, an infection that might be on work site. Um, uh, or there's uh, um, uh, and and really thinking about the environmental services. So that's just a brief overview of some of the environmental and screening considerations before we get into the deeper topic of testing. So why don't we shift a little bit into thinking about testing and uh, as employers think about testing, 
and, and I've had the opportunity um, to uh, talk to um, dozens and dozens of employers as they think about the return to work site strategy. The first um, piece is understanding um, the, the who to test and uh, who to test really comes down to a set of business continuity considerations about who you're bringing back to work site, but then uh, which only the employer can think through um, that uh, aspect. Who really needs to be on work site versus those who can work um, from a distance. But once you've identified those people that need to be on work site, there's a set of clinical protocols um, uh, that we can talk through. And uh, the reasons to test, who to test, could be because those symptom checkers have triggered someone who needs to be tested. Uh, and so you send somebody to be tested because of the symptom checker screening someone for further testing. Uh, so symptomatic individuals is category number one. Uh, category number two is people who have been exposed uh, to individuals who have suspected or known positive for COVID. So that exposure uh, testing is another uh, potential category that employers might consider. Um, and it might be because of uh, a fellow colleague at the work site or a customer who comes in, um, but that second category of exposure. Uh, the third category is routine screening. And routine screening would be because you have individuals who are going to be working in close proximity or are critical for business continuity. And it's important for, um, uh, for the business to have uh, routine testing to ensure that um, those individuals do not have active COVID infection. That's a really great start. Um, I wanted to, before we get into some of the protocols and stuff, there's just a couple questions I think that um, a lot of people have that there hasn't been a ton of clarity on. Uh, one is testing availability. And I know early on tests were not available. Uh, when they became available, they were only available to people that had symptoms of COVID, at least here in Connecticut. I believe even to this day, it's very difficult to get a test for any purpose other than that you think you might have it. So like on an individual level, trying to screen yourself, your family members and other people is not really possible or at least hasn't been. Uh, are we at a point now where at least for employers that are looking to do something like this, there is enough tests available at all? Yeah, so um, you're right to talk about testing capacity as an issue that we need to be cognizant of as a country, and then also for employers to think about specifically for their um, employees and dependents. And so um, the testing infrastructure has continued to grow. Uh, and at uh, CVS Health, we've had the opportunity having um, uh, providing 1,400 community-based testing sites to be able to uh, talk to central reference laboratories across the country to understand what their testing capacity is. And then also, in, in addition to point of care, uh, 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 
central reference laboratories, there is an increasing amount of point of care testing capacity that's coming online as well. So um, the past two months at the time that we're recording this in, in June and July have seen significant pressure on the testing infrastructure. And we see that with increased uh, wait times um, uh, now ranging from six to 10 days on average for results to come back. Um, but moving forward, having had the opportunity to talk to many of the laboratories, as well as seeing the increasing point of care capacity that's coming online, um, as we enter the fall, uh, we do expect, I do personally expect that the issues that we've had with testing capacity will get better. Uh, and so you're rightfully right to point out the pressure today. Um, I think we're going to continue to see that pressure uh, through August. As we enter September and October, um, there will be greater capacity, which will only continue to grow which allows employers to think about how to use that capacity as they think about return to work. Yeah, it's a really good point. I mean, a lot of that planning has to be done now. And uh, um, I think the other big question before we get into some of the details is the reliability of tests. Um, I have another example from Connecticut. It was recently um, indicated that it was something like 20 to 30 percent of both false positives and false negatives. Uh, that was the error rate for testing here. I realize that there's a lot of different companies have created a lot of different kinds of tests. Uh, maybe they're conducting tests in different ways. It seems to me like the the importance of getting a accurate test can't be uh, overstated. Are they accurate yet? And, and what do you do with that error margin? Yeah, yeah, it's a really great question about the accuracy of these tests. And so Part of this is also understanding the different types of testing modalities. Um, so the current gold standard is something called polymerase chain reaction or PCR testing. And PCR testing uh, is um, uh, uh, the test where you have a nasal swab, which is then sent to a central laboratory which then we look to amplify the genetic material to determine how much virus is present. Um, and so PCR is considered the gold standard, but even PCR is not perfect. It can depend on how the sample was collected or transported or any number of issues that can occur from point of collection to running the test. So this is not an issue particular to COVID, but as we've all become um, you know, uh, more knowledgeable as a society about the different modalities of testing, we start to understand um, the trials and tribulations of testing. But PCR is the gold standard. And off of PCR, um, you then have other testing modalities like point of care testing. And point of care testing is also looking at um, uh, there's one version that's looking at the genetic material, um, the RNA, uh, and trying to amplify it similar to PCR, but doing it in a, a point of care method as opposed to sending it to a, a central laboratory. Um, and then there's other point of care tests that are looking for the proteins. And so 
in the end, all of these tests are looking for evidence of virus um, shedding. Um, and uh, in addition, in, in when you move to point of care, uh, you're, you have a trade-off. You're moving to shorter test time uh, to result, um, but with the shorter time for processing, you have generally lower sensitivity and specificity than what you would see with the gold standard test. And these are just the trade-offs that as an employer, you have to think through as you choose which testing modality um, and that uh, all of the tests really need to be done in conjunction with the clinical context. So it's important for the patient to say, um, I, you know, if this test does not feel like the right result, like I have a fever, cough, shortness of breath, I was just in context, in contact with somebody four days ago who had a diagnosed COVID and my test is negative, that negative test has a different meaning and a high concern for a false negative than a patient who says, I've been at home for the last two weeks and I have a headache uh, and I'm getting tested for COVID and it's a negative test. So you have to put the test result also in context, in addition to what type of test modality you're using, the clinical context as well. You know, um, part of what I think is making this so difficult as employers and HR departments start to put together a plan for bringing employees back to the work site is context, right? There isn't, I think people want to be given a outline of a plan here, step one, here, step two, or step three. And, you know, you already mentioned when you started talking about some of the procedures, I mean, the very first consideration is being, you know, using the context of your business to understand who to bring back and more, just as importantly, who not to bring back. So, you know, it's very difficult, I think, for us to get like a total um, rundown of what to do. And so the goal, I think, is to try and get people to understand the starting point. And yeah. You began to discuss, you know, the, the the who to test this. I think you mentioned three different uh, pools of people. Um, the symptomatic, the uh, was it the exposed individuals, and then routine screening. I, yeah. from my perspective, as a uh, very paranoid and concerned individual, <laughs> um, to me it seems like routine screening, right? Because someone could come in not seem sick and get everybody else sick. And by the time you know that, especially if we were doing testing right now with a couple of days of before you get those results back, disaster's already struck and now you're in cleanup mode. How feasible is routine screening? Yep, so uh, routine screening is feasible, uh, um, especially with increasing capacity for lab testing coming online. So let, let's talk a little bit about the clinical and scientific rationale for routine screening, um, it, would not, um, it would not make sense to do routine screening at this point because of the, um, we don't have the ability to do routine screening of every individual in this country, given the testing capacity. But for business critical concerns, um, 
you have the ability as an employer to identify a potential population that uh, would require routine screening. And the question is, what is the routine screening and why would you do routine screening? So um, the routine screening can either be done weekly, every other week, monthly, quarterly. So from a clinical perspective, we do know that symptom checkers are a good way to screen for potentially um, uh, for potential people who have COVID. But there is a, a segment of the population, anywhere between 40, 50%, who are asymptomatic from five to 11 days before they start to exhibit symptoms. And so by doing routine testing, and there's no general consensus or peer-reviewed literature at this point at the time at the end of July that says, um, you know, one week or two week is better than monthly or quarterly. But given what I just said about asymptomatic individuals uh, from five to 11 days, for those business critical people who are really in close proximity for central for business continuity issues, testing on a weekly basis uh, would be reasonable for being able to identify potentially um, asymptomatic but COVID um, positive individuals. Uh, you know, as you move out to every other week, there is that chance that you miss individuals and monthly and quarterly, as you could imagine, given that five to 11 days, you probably have less of an ability to do that. I think it's it's easy to understand the limitations of, of testing, you know, as you're talking about these things, I'm thinking about, you know, a guy comes in or an employee comes in on a Monday, he doesn't have any symptoms. Um, you've, you've chosen this guy's critical to the business. So you give him a COVID test, uh, and then he works for however long, like a day, two days before that test comes back and says, okay, you're fine. And that person's going to feel some relief. Uh, but at the same time, you know, who knows what they're doing at home, who knows how, how well they're socially distancing or wearing masks, who knows if that test was accurate. You know, by the time you find any of that information out, he's been at work. Like, let's say it comes back, uh, you know, you find out the next week he's feeling not feeling well or some of his coworkers or family aren't feeling well. It's just like the, ga the gaps between all these things to me are very scary. And I, I'm, a, I'm not alone. So, you know, I guess the question is, how do you close those gaps? Can you? Yep. So the role of routine testing is about risk mitigation, not risk elimination. You rightly point out that there's limitations on the ability of our testing. Even the gold standard is not 100%, as I had just mentioned, right? Um, and so uh, thinking about... Uh, again, how much risk are we trying to mitigate? And you might want to increase the cadence of testing instead of weekly, is it every three days or every five days? And But then there's cost considerations around that. The other piece is, do you want to use PCR testing, which is generally swabbing and sending into a reference laboratory with a couple of days turnaround time? Or is there a role as an employer to invest in point of care testing, which can give you rapid results at the point of care within 15, five to 15 minutes. And so 
depending on your strategy on why are you testing for what business continuity issues, you may decide that a subset of individuals would benefit from point of care testing and finding um, clinical partners who can help set up point of care testing uh, to help with your um, testing needs. Yeah, what I was going to say is that, you know, the the concept of mitigated risk is really important because there's a lot of risks in everyday life that we've all accepted. You're driving to work, you could get in a car crash, you go downstairs, you could fall down the stairs. You could, you know, there's you eat a not healthy meal, doesn't seem like a big deal, but over time it adds up. And I think the difference between coronavirus and those risks is that because it's so immediate and in our face and we haven't had a chance to get used to it, you know, the the instinct is we want to be able to eliminate the risk and it's just not possible, right? So I, I guess the follow-up question is, and, and I think the answer is yes, I sure hope it is, but mitigated risks are still worth it though, right? Taking these these steps does ultimately lead to a better situation. That's correct. And then, um, you know, as uh, um, as an employer uh, uh, thinking about how much risk to take is an important part of that planning process of return to work site, um, who to bring back, um, where will, what's the physical site look like, and then the role of, and, and thinking through the role of testing and how frequently, what types of testing. What are some of the considerations uh, that employers uh, might not, it might not be obvious to employers about specifically testing? Yeah. So um, one of the, uh, we talked about three use cases for testing symptomatic exposure or routine uh, testing to ensure the safety of the worksite. A fourth one had been talked about for the last couple of months and has really fallen out of favor um, over the last uh, few days and weeks, which is recovery validation. And so there's been this question of, can you use testing as a way to um, say that somebody is no longer infected and therefore can return to work site. And so what we have found is that there is a small population who have had COVID and then uh, have recovered from COVID uh, symptomatically. However, there are case reports of individuals shedding virus that's being detected by PCR um, that um, uh, testing modality we talked about earlier, uh, up to two to three months past when all of their symptoms are resolved. And the question has been, are those individuals safe to bring back to the work site or are they still infectious? Um, and the clinical community, and this is now reflected in the CDC guidance, is that testing for recovery validation no longer plays a role because there is no evidence that that post-resolution viral shedding is pathogenic, meaning that people are actually infectious, that that virus actually has any role. It's just viral fragments that are coming out um, that really cannot infect anyone else. So as employers are thinking about 
the populations for testing, uh, there are some clinical use cases for testing and recovery validation that are very specific and are best managed by the clinical community, like people who are in immunosuppression. But in general, for the majority of the population, uh, testing for recovery validation is not necessary. Um, so that that's one um, nuance that has come out in the last couple of weeks at the time of this recording. Yeah, I find that to be very interesting. You know, we all kind of have an understanding that typically speaking, if you've had a disease, uh, when you're over it, you're not going to get that specific disease again, um, which, as we've all learned, is not necessarily true. And there's been a lot of mixed data out there about that as it pertains to COVID. Um, there have been cases of people getting reinfected after they've been uh, gotten over over the illness. Most of the cases I've read about have been people that have been in the medical community that are being exposed to massive viral loads regularly. Um, you know, and so that taints things. But it's so tempting to be like, okay, I had it. Now it's safe for me. You know, that instinct is just to want to believe that so that you can feel safe in the world. And if that were true, that would have a lot of implications for how we could approach this. You know, we could have a workforce of just people who've already had coronavirus, right? What is that? That's the kind of area you're talking about right now. So I guess, uh, you know, we didn't, there's a, another way to think about um, testing, testing for active infection and then testing for the fact that you've had the infection in the past. Right. So what we've been talking about to, to this point has been active infection, uh, which is the looking for the active genetic material, whether it's the RNA or the proteins. There, um, and when I talked about recovery validation, it was really about looking for active infection, looking at the viral um, genetic material. And there's no role for that right now. You're getting into this really interesting second concept of, can we identify people who have been previously infected? And that's antibodies. And a lot of people have been talking about antibodies as a, um, a way to um, uh, see if somebody had a prior infection. And just, um, if you'll indulge me for a moment, what are antibodies? Absolutely. When our immune system, when our immune system uh, sees an infection, uh, we create a memory of that infection and then um, we, uh, there's uh, sort of two parts to our immune system. There's a humoral uh, and cell mediated. And humoral is the creation of antibodies um, post-infection. Those antibodies, if they see the infection again, they go and attach onto that infection, uh, that virus or bacteria, whatever it is. And then, um, uh, and it, triggers the immune system to go and attack anything where the antibody is attached onto. Then the cell-mediated immunity is the other part of our immune system, which is uh, it doesn't need necessarily the antibodies, but the, the immune system, those cells, have the ability to recognize um, uh, an infection and are able to attack that infection. What we are finding out and um, it, again, we I've never in never in uh, our um, lifetime have we had so much scientific output on one 
issue as we have seen in the last six months. And so the explosion of information is overwhelming, but we're learning a lot about antibodies. There are a lot of people who don't create antibodies, um, but are still successful at clearing the infection. That's very interesting. Or they have a significant rise in their antibodies and then it goes away, um, but they still clear the infection. And that's because the other part of their immune system, the cell-mediated immune system, is also equally as robust and able to clear the infection. So it's really tempting to want to be able to use, uh, and this would be my second consideration for employers, to think about using antibodies as a way to identify which populations have been previously infected and might be safe to bring back to work. Because if they have presence of antibodies, you could say, gosh, they, they cleared the infection, they have protection. But if, you know, if you've been tracking over the last like two minutes of this um, uh, topic, that isn't always true. There's a lot of people who have no antibodies who are just as good at clearing the infection, um, and they are also able to return to work site. And so, you know, I think um, my guidance to employers would be at this point, and obviously things are changing on a daily and weekly basis, but at this point at the end of July, there's very little evidence that antibody testing plays a role and um, at this point, I would not encourage employers to be investing in antibody testing until we learn more about the dynamics of antibodies as it relates to COVID um, infection. I think a lot of employers will uh, feel a little relieved about that because um, I think it was the DOL determined that you can't force employees to take antibody tests but you can compel employees to take um, COVID tests. So even if employers wanted to roll out something like uh, antibody testing scheme, they could run into a lot of issues and a lot of liability. We've covered that in, in other issues, uh, other episodes. Um, I think that, you know, my wife and I, we talk about this stuff all the time, the impact that this is having on our kid, the impact it's having on our social lives. You know, are we all going to just end up with cabin fever by the time this is all over? You know, and part of what makes it bearable is that there's a, a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, maybe that's a bad metaphor. That there's a an end to this, which is that maybe there'll be a vaccine. Maybe it'll come out soon. And we can at least start taking steps to getting this under control. Um, and I think vaccines are going to be very important to employers when they do come out. I think we're going to see them being probably the number one uh, purchasers of these, uh, of the vaccines. Uh, what's your understanding of where we are with that? Is that really a possibility? And I'm pretty sure it's not the magic bullet we're looking for, but to what degree could it, could it help us? Yeah, great question. Vaccines are uh, critically important to our fight against any um, uh, transmissible infection and there, you know, um, uh, I'm really blessed to be able to have a team that is constantly working to understand the evidence base around the vaccines um, uh, and um, and thinking about how we can help uh, the country distribute these vaccines across the country. 
And so based on, uh, on our team's work, uh, we see a number of promising candidates, and many of them have been identified by the administration through their effort called Operation uh, Warp Speed, OWS. And so the o OWS um, effort from the administration has been to identify promising candidates and ensuring that they have the resources necessary to rapidly assess and uh, produce um, the vaccines and support rollout. There are uh, a half dozen or so candidates that are in, in the program. Um, they have different mechanisms, um, but there's a couple of emerging themes around these vaccines. Um, they appear to be largely vaccines that would require two um, doses, so an initial and then a booster a few weeks later. Um, and it looks like, though we'll see, that they would likely be annual uh, vaccines. Uh, the current uh, batch are not um, lifelong immunity vaccines, but you know we'll see what the evidence shows. Um, they generally appear to be uh, safe at the point of the phase two studies. And what we're looking to see in the phase three, which are starting um, now through the summer and early fall is do they confer immunity and protection? And then in terms of the rollout of these vaccines, this will be, um, you know, uh, worked through through um, uh, Health and Human Services, Center for Disease Control, uh, and the federal government in general to determine what are the priority populations and ensure that priority populations um, um, get the vaccine first as we then consider a broader rollout. Uh, and even today, um, Francis Collins uh, issued a notice that not everyone's going to be happy with the rollout plan uh, as the prioritization comes out. But um, given the significant amount of resources being invested, uh, that there will be um, uh, availability uh, in vaccines over the course of the year. So I would say in summary, I'm very excited about the prospect of vaccines. We are, um, uh, this is the fastest that we've ever um, seen development of vaccines. Uh, the clinical evidence is continuing to grow in favor of, but we have not completed the clinical evidence story around vaccines. Uh, and there's a significant amount of attention being played on the, um, the next chapter of the story beyond the clinical evidence, which is the rollout strategy um, and the logistics and um, delivery strategy of these vaccines come um, 2021. What they might, what vaccines might represent to a lot of people right now, um, people that see their value, I should add is the possibility, and I think it might be a little bit of a delusion, of going back to the way things were. Um, it's so attractive of a concept to say, just whatever it is, there's an end, and when it ends, we can resume our ordinary lives. And I think that a lot of experts and professionals have been cautioning us to be very careful with that kind of thinking, because the odds are that when this doesn't go away. This just sort of fades and in a certain sense, becomes a backdrop 
part of the backdrop of our lives. You know, I, I guess the question is, you know, what do you think things are going to look like in a year or two years in the workplace? Yeah, um, the there is a growing consensus in the clinical community that uh, given the uh, significant amount of infections that we're seeing and the transmission rate um, right now that co- coronavirus is here to stay. And the question is exactly what is the new normal um, in terms of uh, work site. And so um, the uh, intensity of and the longevity of those strategies that we talked about up front around symptom checkers and physical worksite replanning, environmental cleaning, uh, and the role of testing. Um, they, in my opinion, they will continue to play a role for at least the next year and maybe for the next couple of years as we continue to um, uh, manage COVID. The question is the intensity of which uh, employers need to invest in those strategies, which um, quite frankly, we're still very early on in the COVID story, unfortunately, to be able to project out what will this time next year look like. Um, But as we think about the rest of 2020, all of these strategies are going to be important. uh, And uh, really through the first half of 2021, given that um, it will take time for us to manage the current outbreaks that we see across the country, as well as get um, produce. Uh, so first scientifically validate, produce, and then distribute a vaccine and have widespread adoption. These things take time. So this new normal is really with us for at least the next year, if not longer. I'm sure there are many things we haven't discussed, but is there anything pressing that you feel like we really need to get in here before we end this? We had the opportunity to talk about um, testing of PCR and point of care. What uh, I am incredibly excited about is the amount of innovation that's happening in testing um, to increase the amount of uh, testing supply, as well as to improve the accuracy of testing and to improve the speed of testing. Um, and so we talked about PCR as well as um, point of care testing using um, you know, viral uh, RNA or, or protein testing. Um, and then moving forward, we see a lot of additional technologies coming on that could allow for very large uh, sets of um, samples to be run simultaneously or um, uh, to use next-gen sequencing or CRISPR or LAMP. Uh, and these are all acronyms for new technologies that are coming on online. So um, there is going to be continued innovation in this space, which will only help employers uh, improve the health and safety of the work site. And one of the things that, that it reminds me of is, um, and bear with me a second, uh, radiation. Um you know, when when we started having nuclear power plants and medical testing with radiation, it's a, it's the same kind of thing in the sense that it's an, a constant threat, something you have to really keep an eye on all the time for all of your workers, period. And, you know, there's these devices that as time went on, people got better at understanding 
testing for radiation where you can, you know, wave your hand in front of a device and it tells you if you've taken on any radiation, you know, and the concept was that you've basically created a checkpoint. Um, and they also have those badges that people that work around radiation that, that measures their overall, um, exposure, you know, and these are the things that would have been wild science fiction 80 years ago, right? but that are the everyday life of the people that work in this field. You yeah. know, you can almost envision something like that one day for COVID where you want to walk into a store, you got to do this quick one second test and okay, you're cool. You can come in. <laughs> yeah. I mean, with every crisis comes innovation and, you know, technologic advancement. So uh, as uh, crushing it as, as this time is for all of us, um, and especially for those of us who have lost a loved one or have had to experience this disease personally, um, if there is any silver lining from this, will be um, the scientific achievements that come out of this crisis uh, that will then permeate into our everyday life. But you know, until then, it's really important that we take care of each other uh, and really um, ensure that we keep ourselves healthy and safe and keep those around us healthy and safe and ensure that we all have a safe return to work site. Well, thank you so much again uh, for joining us today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. You're most welcome. Listeners, we are always interested in suggestions you might have for what HR Works should cover next. Feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at HR Works Podcast or with any thoughts or concerns you have about the podcast in general. Thank you for listening. This is Jim Davis with HR Works.